0: hey jack hey zach how you doing i'm doing good
1: how are you just really excited we have this awesome hand that a listener sent in so beautiful let's do it let's talk so like we asked for this person wrote in with a lot of detail uh, so we're gonna give you some of the description about the room and the players in the hand before kind of getting right into it so this took place in a social hall in New York around 9 p.m. Uh, it's at a 1-2 cash game. And apparently the hall holds cash games twice a week, which run from about 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. in a weekly tournament. Uh, people at the 1-2 generally buy in for between 75 and 150 and looser players apparently drop sometimes as four dollars to $600. So there are about seven people at the table for this hand, and two players have recently busted out, so I assume it's normally a 9 table. So, apparently this player's winnings thus far have come from four pots where he opened, and two of which went to showdown. One he showed ace-king for top pair, top kicker, and the other 9-7 suited after catching a straight on the turn. The player in the small blind he's never played with before, and this is what he calls a rando, Someone who plays not just wildly, but seemingly almost randomly. He's in his 20s and appears to be either slightly drunk or high. He has mentioned that he works for a blacktopping company, but when he stepped out for a bathroom break, some of the other guys at the table who were familiar with the company expressed doubts that he was still employed there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sounds like a a good rando to be playing with. Uh, After losing a couple big hands and getting knocked down at just 15 of stack, he has gone in blind twice, gotten a caller each time, and has won both. Mm -hmm. Now has about $200. Our listener is salivating to take all of his chips and just laying in wait to do so. (laughs) Nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is the player in the small blind. The big blind is a decent, loose, aggressive player who he's played with before in tournaments. He's a grumpy, heavyset guy in his 50s who also works in some form of construction. I think we've all played with that type of player before. (laughs) Uh, about half of our listeners winning so far come from this player, but he's steered clear of him ever since. Uh, He generally succeeds in this lineup by isolating heads up and banking on an opponent's likelihood of folding to aggression. This player is about 250. Okay. Uh, And just to remind uh, people, uh, the listener in this hand has 350. So the first to act is a guy in his 30s who owns a professional landscaping business and someone he knows a little from tournaments uh, as a decent tag. He gives off the vibe of thinking that the rest of the players are kind of ridiculous and he's just biding his time to take everyone's money. A judgment which is not entirely undeserved and probably not unlike my own table image. Okay, self-aware. Very good. (laughs) Uh, This villain has clearly studied the game a fair amount and mostly sticks to quality hands. However, he's definitely capable of using his image to bluff or semi-bluff in the right spot, as well as taking opportunities to see a flop cheaply and then outplaying weaker opponents afterward, which may well be what happened here. (laughs) Foreshadowing. Yeah, that's self-awareness. He's a lot more alert and tight than most at the table, although by no means a nit. He too is about 250. Second player under the gun is a skinny, older, balding man with glasses in his 60s, easily pegged as a fitter-fold fish. His table image is goofy, often spl- splashing the pot or flinging his cards away, theatrically in disgust. Again, yeah. <laughs> another player type. <laughs> uh, he's the kind of player who's constantly lamenting, where was that last hand? I.e., If he lost with queen jack and the next hand flop is queen jack three. He's down to 80 from whatever his original buy-in was. I have get to see him do anything but limp into pots and he only bets with top pair or an unusually strong draw. He doesn't worry our listener in the least. Okay. It doesn't sound like anyone at this table should necessarily <laughs> worry the listener. Yeah, except maybe the first guy to act. He, he seems kind of like, you know, a thinking tag is willing to mix it up, which is... Uh,
0: yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah. Again, yeah. I, I suspect our listener may be giving him too much credit just based on... The fact that you know they're playing it kind of like a short stacked one two game, mm-hmm. but uh, you know let's give him the benefit down and say he's at least like somewhat of a thinking player. So just to recap, small blind is a rando who's like really bad, really aggressive, just kind of crazy. Is about two hundred. Big blinds is an all right loose aggressive player. Uh, first to act is this kind of better thinking tag, and the second uh, player kind of next to act under uh, under the gun plus one. Uh, is a fitter fold
0: older fish. Now this is really the beauty of poker, right here. Uh, you know, if you're sitting at the table, you're gonna win money from these people, but it's it's still a complicated endeavor. Uh, all right, let's let's get to the action. So our listener is on
1: the button with black tens, and again, uh, he covers all the villains in this hand. Uh, first to act is the. The kind of thinking tag. Uh, Our listener knows he makes a bit of a face when he looks at the cards, rolling his eyes just a little before making a weak raise of six. And the listener doesn't think he was Hollywooding with a big hand. So the goofy fish calls. Someone folds. A lag kind of undescribed previously who's not important in the hand calls. And then our hero makes it 16 with 10s. Uh, and The first thing he writes is that, in retrospect, I think I should have made this more like 20 or 25, if only to lend more credibility later to a possible shove. The small size was intended in part to begin mining the looser players, building a decent-sized pot which I could then either control or scoop on the flop depending on its texture. So, a lot of talk about here, Jack. What are, you, mm-hmm. what are you thinking?
0: Well, the first thing I'll say is that I do think that this is... Uh, a good 3 betting spot, and I also think that the sizing should be larger. I think the reasons for sizing larger listed here are not necessarily what my reasons would be. I think, so So to say that giving uh, credibility to a possible shove, I, I think that we shouldn't be too worried about, I think if we raise the 16 at this table, we're not going to get bluff shoved very much anyways, so I think we have to give uh, a lot of respect and thought to being shoved on whether we make it 16 or 21, uh, or sorry, not 21 necessarily, but a larger sizing. I think really the reason to size it larger is just for value, Um, because I think you're very likely to get action from worse hands here, and we should make the price uh, higher.
1: Yeah, also, uh, our listener wrote if only to lend more credibility later to a possible shove, right now you have a value hand. He's kind of wrote that as if this is like a bluff and that he might have to turn that hand into a bluff later. Like right now we're in the business of extracting value and so far we have a raise from like a kind of more thinking tag who kind of only 3x'd it, which I'm guessing he's doing with a capped range. Then we have a -hmm. call from this kind of older fold fish like our goal in raising this size is to try to get those two players to call with a large percentage of the hands that they are in, that they have already put money in the pot with, and to potentially get a call
0: from, you know, the small blind and the big blind. Yeah. No, sorry. I guess I misinterpreted what he was saying there. I thought he was saying he wanted to dissuade, uh, like, preflop bluff shoves, which I don't think is what uh, he meant
1: yeah so I think in this spot uh it also really depends you know because I typically as uh listeners of the podcast know uh I usually have a kind of bluffy loose wild image <laughs> you you say that every episode i know so <laughs> so they know but it, it, it is true though like i i'm I'm making it here I'm probably making it twenty five thirty here uh, but that's not something I think necessarily makes sense for most players. I think probably closer to twenty, twenty-one, mm-hmm. twenty-two makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think guessing that you probably have uh, five-dollar chips, making it twenty-five here is pretty reasonable. I think the chip roundings can be uh, important because I think that I'm—you I'm almost definitely have five-dollar chips—and I think that. Generally, people think that when they don't give that much consideration to the difference between 23 and 25 just because, you know, rounding with your chip values. And so I think if the decision is between 20 and 25, I think they're going to look pretty similar, uh, especially because people are going to think that if you'd wanted to bet 21 or 22, you'd probably just bet 25 anyways. So I think 25 is the size I would use. Agreed. Good stuff, Jack.
1: And to our listener's credit, he does kind of think in retrospect he should have made it 20 or 25. He made it sixteen. We got a call from the small blind, the kind of rando that we want in the hand. then a call from the more thinking tag, and a call from the fitter fold fish uh so now it's a four four way pot
0: sixty four dollars in the flop. he's like just like has like different <laughs> nicknames or different people like everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: So, to recap on the effective stack sizes, uh, our hero covers everyone. The small blind has 200, the thinking tag has 250, and the fitter fold fish has about 80. So, the flop is. fish. <laughs> 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 so, the flop is nine six two, so with a two and six of hearts. Uh, it's checked to our hero. And what he writes is this seems like an almost ideal flop for 10, despite the possible flush and straight draws. With only a brief pause, I bet 36, a bit more than half pot. I again soon wish I made it more like 50, both to build a better story if I have to shove and to punish drawing hands, but I was counting on the 36 bet to keep the rando around for value while convincing both the villain and Fitterfold Fish not to draw to overs. A check seam out of the question.
0: Well, I agree that a check is out of the question. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, it, I think it's really important to consider consider sizing here. And to me, this doesn't seem like a super obvious spot in terms of what type of sizing will be best. Uh, but I think that some of the details that this listener is using to make that decision are probably not the details or the, the factors that I would be using to make the decision. So before maybe I discuss or try and figure out What sizing, I think, is best. Really, a question we want to know here is what is the most value we can get uh, from the range of hands uh, that are worse than our hands that might call a bet in this spot?
1: And this is primarily nines and, you know, hard draws and straight draws here.
0: Yeah. And I think that potentially some sixes, uh, but I think that we should probably focus Um, 9s, maybe some middling pocket pairs, uh, 6s, and then, yeah, uh, straight and flush draws. So, I agree that 36 is too small, because I think we can get more from 9s, potentially more from some middle pairs, the original Razor, if he might be ranging you more heavily on draws in this spot. Uh, and I think that the rando, if he's going to be drawing, he's probably going to be drawing for just about any price. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I think that's another strong reason. I, I'm not, I guess, thinking as much about the fit or fold player. You know, I think if he folds, it doesn't matter. And if he throws a fit, he's probably just going to ship for his 80 uh, whether you bet 36 or 60. Yep. Uh. So I would, I would probably go with your second sizing, uh, 50 or 55. Yeah, and to just comment on something this
1: player said, uh, he kind of said a preflop too, it's, you know, maybe he should have made it 50 to build a better story if he has to shove. It's always important to know why you're betting. Uh, and when you bet, you should either be betting uh, for primarily one of two reasons, betting for value, i.e. getting a worse hand to call you, Uh, or betting as a bluff, getting a better hand uh, to fold. Again, there's also kind of protection betting, but mainly these two categories. And right now, pre-flop and on the flop, our hero has clearly had a value hand. So he shouldn't have been thinking about, oh, how should I size it to build up a convincing story to bluff shove on a later point in the hand? He should just be thinking, how do I get value now? So I agree that you know making it more like fifty would have been ideal, and I think in this spot, if I get here this way, sixty-four in the pot, I'm going to be making it fifty or fifty-five, but not for that reason, just for pure value reasons. In that, I think the the kind of the the players drawing are going to do so for fifty and for thirty-six. Uh, I think the only type of value we're missing. And this is where I disagree a little bit with Jack, is like, if the original Razor has 7s, 8s, or 6s, I think he is more likely to call a probably smaller doesn't. bet.
0: Sorry to interject, but he probably doesn't have any 6s in his range. I think if it's the small blind flat calls and it's only $10 more, I think he has 6, 7 suited. Maybe 5, 6 suited. But I don't think he opens any of those based on the description. Maybe. He did only make it six, though. But he was under the gun, and he, it says he basically plays he plays a strong range. And I, 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 I don't think there's anything that said he wouldn't limp a hand. like Okay. Uh, yeah, you're, pro- you're probably right. I, yeah, so, I just think there are very few sixes. So it's, it's probably just sevens and eights. And, so then again, and then the it's, it's essentially the same hand, but I, I do think that probably uh, there's only you know the 12 combos of sevens and eights that we're really thinking about here. So it's a smaller potentially a smaller percentage of the range than your But it, sorry. Agreed. This, yeah, is, this agree. is really a minimal detail.
1: And also it supports the point. It supports the point. Like we shouldn't be trying to get value from sevens and eights or the weird occasional six he has. We should be trying to get value from draws and mm-hmm. from nines. Oh, okay, I see.
0: Yeah. So so you're saying size it bigger? Yeah, size it like fifty fifty five. That that that's the re- reason for doing so. Well that's the sizing that I suggested. So are you saying size it bigger than that? No,
1: but you were saying that we should also try and target like middling pocket pairs and sixes. And I think that when you make a 50-55 versus like, the 36 that
0: our hero did,
1: I think you will be a lot more likely to get a fold from a hand like sevens
0: or eights. I agree. So I guess, But I, I think that we're in agreement. So I, let me sort of clarify what I was saying before to the listeners. Uh, what I was saying, I guess, is that we should consider sevens and eights and maybe a potential six hands we could get value from Uh, but we definitely want to be sizing where we'll get the most value across the entire range so I think that in this spot we're likely accepting the fact that we're going to have some of those hands fold to get more value from draws uh, and nines but I do think that uh, a sizing like 50 or 55 could get called uh, by some very skeptical 7s and 8s so I do uh, think it's worth mentioning okay Cool.
1: So, um, so here it is 36. I'm uh, making the plot 100. The small blind folds, and then this kind of thinking tag thinks for a whole minute and a long time, apparently, for this table, attempting at one point to stare the hero down and check raises to 110. Then the next player folds. So our hero writes So now I'm debating whether to fold or call the $74 raise or a re raise, which would put him close to all in. So basically, whether to shove. Having noted his eye roll before the small bet under the gun, our hero's concern is that he came in with sixes or juices and hit a set. A pair of nine seems m- much less likely given his pre flop action and post flop deliberation. So, other possibilities for specific hands might include ace nine, uh, top pair, top kicker, seven eight suited uh, for the open ended straight draw. Flush draw with over cards, or a flush draw including the nine of hearts, so a pair and a flush draw. Uh, each of these seem plausibly within his range based on what I know from him from his tournament play, coupled with his body language and the specific hand. If he had nine nine or jacks or better, presumably he would have raised more than just to six under the gun. Meanwhile, I have no history with this villain that suggests he could be bluffing with air. His bet suggests to me that instead the villain believes he's ahead and would prefer for me to fold since there are multiple draws on the board. I'd be getting just 2.7 to 1 on a call, and this does not strike the listener as a good enough price unless he's semi-bluffing, since there is little room for him to prove on the tens besides the two outs. So his sizing feels like protection for sets, or for top pair top kicker against various draws. It reads much less to me like a semi-bluff in the other direction. Anyway, the sizing of his bet may have had more to do with their stacks than pot odds. It basically gave him just enough room to fire another barrel of a slightly larger size on the turn if necessary. Now, our listener continues writing, what range does he put me on? My bet suggests either an overpair, a nine with a Broadway card, or possibly one of the draws. I feel in retrospect I telegraphed the overpair with my betting. At the time, I assumed he also had made a hand rather than a draw. His somewhat exacerbated preflop look went away on the flop, even after his bet of slightly more than half the pot. I don't think that behavior makes sense for this player if he only had connectors or big suited cards, which the flop would improve for him, but still keep the hand speculative. The $36 bet did give him some pause, but ultimately probably just gave him better reason to re-raise, especially if he counted into his calculations that he'd fold to a big bet, that I'd fold to a big bet. If I just call, I am likely to face the same dilemma on the turn. Any heart over card 5 or even one of the 10s may make his hand worse. If any of the board cards pair, it might rule out some of his range, but only worsens the risk from Villain's possible set. I could expect the Villain to fire his remaining 120 or so regardless of what comes. He doesn't have me covered, but he could take pretty much all of my winnings thus far. I contemplate a shove, since it likely would come to the same thing anyway in the turn. Had I bet a little more aggressively both pre-flop and on the flop, I think that might have been a more convincing story. If he folds to the shove, I improve my stack by about 50%. This felt like the classic situation where you're only getting called with better, and my read was that he did have the set. So he folds and almost immediately regrets it. <laughs> so there's a lot in that description. Uh, first off, again, we really appreciate when people send in hands giving this amount of depth and kind of cl- cluing us into their thought process. I hope that's helpful f- for for you guys Was kind of giving you really all the information he
0: wrote in with. Jack, do you want to start to kind of go through that? Hmm. I, I think the... The first thing that should be uh, addressed is thinking that, you know, you have this player covered, uh, so, you know, you won't bust out, but that if you call and are wrong or shove and or somehow lose the maximum in this spot, you'll have lost your winnings. I think that that's really not a healthy approach to decision-making in poker, you know, the, you will make the most money in the long run by always trying to make the best strategic decision, and the more you can remove yourself from whether you know the results of this hand are going to mean uh, you had a big win or you lost your winnings or that you might bust out, you should you should try and play in games where one uh, busting out isn't you know a terrible thing, you know if you. If you're playing a game where losing a buy-in is a really big catastrophe, then it's just really not a game you should play in any way. Uh, but So just try and make the best decision, realize that there's going to be variance uh, and accept the consequences and you know, be happy if you win. You don't have to be happy if you lose, but uh, try not to let those sorts of things factor into decisions. I
1: think there's definitely a lot of good
0: uh, in what
1: our hero wrote in with. I think he correctly ranges this villain that he can have... Straight draws, flush draws, and maybe occasionally protecting some of his nines. Uh, so he does that correctly and you know does the pot odds that he's getting one on a call. And where I diverge with him is that given this player's range has so many of those hands combinatorically, I think this is a very good spot to continue on with the hand. Because he just simply has way more nines that are deciding to protect their equity and draws than value hands that beat you. When he makes it kind of six under the gun, to me that's not consistent with pocket nines. So we're, like our listener said, he's only concerned with a set of sixes and a set of threes. And those are really hard to make. (laughs) Uh, So I think... To me, the simple play here is to shove to try and get value from draws, from nines, from nines and draws. And the very few times he has a set, he has a set. And like Jack said, if we can't kind of absorb the variance of, you know, one 300 big blind pot, we probably shouldn't
0: be playing in this game. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the listener suggesting that he can't absorb the variance. I just think that uh, the the desire to book a winning session is interfering with the ability to um, make the correct decision which and I agree I think that this is a to me a pretty clear call not a shove yeah I guess I guess a shove well what are hold on Lambert, this so that he has about a hundred and twenty behind is that right mm-hmm yeah then then a shark sorry, sorry uh, I agree a shove and you know he'll likely call with all of his uh good draws and he'll, he you know he'll probably be getting the right price to call but that doesn't mean that uh shoving we still shouldn't shove because even if he's getting the right price to call we we want to make him put more money in the pot with the draw uh,
1: yeah this player never has two pairs so it's really we're we're only worried about the few set combos and i think when you're up against like a better-thinking player who, as you've described, is capable of, you know, bluffing and semi-bluffing in certain spots, we should be very happy to get it in against uh, a range of sets and worse value hands and draws. hmm I agree. And in terms of the whole kind of read thing, like, what ultimately made our hero fold seemed to be this read that he had, but... But it doesn't really strike me as convincing enough evidence to to make the fold here. Uh, he didn't really talk about like like what what was part of this read. The fact that he eye rolled preflop is that not consistent with seven eight or mm-hmm. with nine ten of hearts or you know it's just like yeah. I think this is an example of uh, someone convincing themselves to take the the easier approach to still book a winning session, which is ultimately kind of like what Jack addressed first, and I think it was good that we addressed that first because that attitude can cause a series of kind of bad decision-making, you know, throughout the session and throughout the hand. It's not just kind of at one point. It's like if you're really afraid to, to lose that money and have such a strong desire to only put it in when you feel very sure, uh, a thinking player will take advantage of that, and it seems like he likely did in this spot.
0: Yeah, and I... To, you might know this, the listener might know this player better than I do. And, you know, perhaps those reads or, you know, the fact that this player took a long time to make the flop raise and bolt his uh, eyes, maybe the eye rolling really suggests lower pocket pairs based on history. And uh, he's never taking a long time uh, unless he's trying to sort of Hollywood that it's a hard decision to get value. You know, you it's it's possible to know a player that well, to, you know, trust uh, that sort of evidence, but I think it's more likely that, you know, there's a little bit of projecting the fear of losing onto these actions. Because uh, to me, if I am taking those sorts of actions into account, I think they're actually uh, in our favor. I think... You're a lot more likely to see, you know, an eye roll of a hand like a seven of hearts or seven eight of hearts than a hand like threes or sixties, where I think people are happy to get those hands and have more of a plan. And I think that if this player has a set, then he already knew that he was going to raise, and it's less likely that he's going to Hollywood than actually maybe think or you know be unsure with a semi draw. It's not a semi draw. a semi bluff. Uh, but you know, even you can, I think it's probably best in this situation where you don't really know what those mean to just disregard it and make the best strategic range based play. When I think that, uh, Zach and I both agree that a shove is the best strategic play here. Yeah. I
1: think a player has to be like very bad and you've had to put in a lot of hours with him at one session, but likely, I mean, that's like a very unique scenario. Uh But likely the only time you can have such a strong read to be able to fold a hand like this on this board is over multiple sessions uh, where you've seen hands like this get to showdown. And it sounds like you both are kind of regs at this card room, but I would imagine it's probably unlikely that you've put in the time necessary with him to make
0: such an exploitive read. Yeah, and also based on the player description, I think it's unlikely that he's not going to ever be semi-bluffing here.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, thank you for sending in the hand and for all of our listeners, uh, you know, continue sending in hands to us. uh, Even if we don't feature them on the podcast, we really enjoy reading them. And if we don't feature it on the podcast, we will get back to you with our thoughts. So uh, please keep sending these hands in, which you can do so on our hand history form on the contact page of our website, justhandspoker.com.
0: Hey guys, this is Jack, recording outdoors. This is our 20th episode, which means we've just about braved an Ohio winter. Not too much news this week, but still want to recommend the premium podcast series Zach and I just put out, uh, Grinding 2.5 in Maryland Live. It's really an excellent resource for anyone playing live low stakes hold'em, which is what we like to talk about. Uh, So check that out if you haven't. Look out for the next segment of my series about transitioning to PLO. Uh, I review some different types of learning resources and talk about, you know, how effective it's been for me. Alright, be well, and we'll see you next week.